Well, a few weeks ago, before uh, Mike, well, before I went out of town and then Mike went out of town, uh, he asked me to come and speak today. And I said, sure. What do you want me to talk about? And uh, he said, well, you know, just whatever is on your heart. And I thought, well, you know, that could be uh, pretty big for me. Uh, so I was like, oh, what, do I, what do I focus on? What do I want to talk about? And I've spent a lot of time with young adults in, um, in the Old Testament and in the book of Genesis. And, uh, you know, I just thought, um, why not the story of, of Noah and, and the flood? And uh, I had been a part of a church a few years ago where the pastor th- had considered doing a whole uh, sermon series on the story of Noah, but unfortunately he never went through with it. But I remember uh, reading through that in preparation and just thinking, man, that was a really, that's a really neat story. There's a lot of stuff there that God wants us to know about him. And uh, I know we just did... Uh, VBS not too long ago, we looked at the flood account with Noah, and uh, that was a great time for everybody. And uh, we kind of did like an overview of things from kind of Noah's, Noah's perspective, what we can learn about Noah in response to that flood. And today I'm going to take a little bit different direction and just talk about basically what we learn about God through this story about the flood. Um, so with that, we'll just dive in. Uh, I didn't intend that pun, but uh, <laughs> why not? So if somebody came up to you and they asked you to sum up the whole story of the Bible in one sentence, just one sentence, how would you answer them? And let's just say that this friend of yours uh, had been reading the Bible, they'd been in, but they got sidetracked, they got confused, they were just kind of unsure about what they were reading, and they were just kind of wondering, well, what's... They came to you, and they know that you're a good reader of the Bible, and they just said, you know, what's the main point? What's the big idea? Where is the direction of this story going? What's the main point? And so how would you answer them to their question? Well, how I would answer them, and I would answer them by saying this. I would just say that the, that the story of the Bible in its simplest form, is God's supremacy over man's futility. So what do I mean by that statement? Well, God's supremacy over man's futility simply just means that God is king. He is Lord over all things. He is Lord of heaven and earth and everything that is in them. He created all things, and all things are held together in him and by him. God is sovereign. He has a plan for his creation. And nothing, nothing gets in the way of God's plans. God is holy. There is no darkness in him at all. There is none. God is just. He judges rightly and fairly. God is not partial. God is an initiator. He's a pursuer. He initiates with his creation, and he pursues us with his salvation. God is always the one that makes the first move to us. From the very beginning, that's been the heart of God. God is love. God is also gracious. You contrast that with who humanity is, who we are as human beings. Well, we are created in God's image, but we are finite. We're not everlasting or anything like that. We are created by God, created in his image, but our image is marred by the reality of sin. You see, sin entered the human race because the first couple 
sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. God had told them not to eat of a certain tree. Remember, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate of it anyway. And as a consequence, God kicked them out of the garden. He separated them from himself. And that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And so from the opening pages of Scripture, we can see that God's supremacy, we can see in the opening pages of Scripture this idea of God's supremacy over man's futility. And I want to just illustrate that real quick with a slide up here that walks us through basically the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to just run through that real quick before we get into the main text, so just stay with me for a moment. So Genesis, as you know, is the first book in the Bible. And in Genesis, the first two chapters, we see that God is creating a good creation. And God says that his creation is very good, that man is the highlight of his very good creation. God is pleased with it. In chapter 3, we see man's first rebellion against God, what we just talked about. God brings judgment on man for his rebellion against him. But even in the midst of that judgment, God still has a plan for redemption. He curses the serpent, the devil, and tells him that one day a human figure would crush evil and put evil under his feet. And that would be Jesus. In chapter 4, the first murder occurs. And it happens within the first family. Adam and Eve have two kids. There's, there's um, Abel and there is Cain. And Cain kills Abel. Abel is part of the righteous line of faith that we see throughout the Bible. He's mentioned as being part of the righteous line of faith. And Cain is representative of an unrighteous line of faith. But then God is gracious to Adam and Eve and gives them another son to replace Abel who carries on that line of faith and that line of righteousness. And his name is Seth. So then in Genesis chapter 5, there's a series of genealogies that take us from the days of Adam to the days of Noah. Then in chapter 6, we see how far man has fallen yet again. They've gone from the garden, they've gone to the first murder, and now we see uh, just rampant corruption throughout the earth, that mankind is morally and completely bankrupt, that they do evil all of the time. There's rampant sexual sin, and violence fills the earth. And because of man's evil against God and against one another, God decides he's going to destroy humanity with a worldwide flood. But God saves one man and his family, Noah. Genesis 7 to 9 tell the flood story. It gives God's blessing for humanity after the flood and encourages humanity to repopulate the earth with Noah's sons. And that's what also happens there in Genesis 10, the repopulation of the earth. By Genesis 11, we see that despite God saving a remnant of humanity, yet again, humanity is in rebellion against God. And this happens at the Tower of Babel, where the people gather together and they decide that they're going to worship God on their terms. They're going to try to get God's attention. It's a system of worshiping God in their own terms, in their own way. But God is not pleased with that because it is God who sets the terms on how he is to be worshiped. So again, God's way is supreme over man's. And so he confuses their language and scatters the nations. Lastly, in Genesis 12, we see that Abraham is brought onto the scene And God gives Abraham a covenant, known as the Abrahamic covenant. And we follow that 
covenant, that promise of God, through the rest of the book and really through the rest of the Bible. So when we look at the opening chapters of Genesis, we can begin to see this pattern of God sovereignly moving to bring his plans and his purposes about despite man's futility. And the opening pages are really a lot like the rest of the Bible that reveal God's supremacy over man's futility. So that's, that's the big picture. So now I want to take that same truth and apply it to the story of Noah. And I'm not doing an apologetics talk today on Noah. I'm sure that many of you have heard all those, those things throughout your lifetime. Um, and really the reason for that is, you know, hopefully sometime I'll get to talk on that, actually. I think that'd be pretty neat to do. But really the reason for not doing it that way is twofold, because one, I don't think that our modern-day questions about the supernatural and evidence uh, for God, mainly, and also things related to science, I don't think that those were the initial questions of the primary audience that Moses and that God is wrestling, that he's dealing with in the, in the Old Testament, those early pages. You see, I think that the questions that Moses' audience needed answered were questions related to theology. And in Moses, as you recall, he's the first, he's the author of the first five books of the Bible, and the those people who are listening to this and reading this is the Israelites, God's chosen people who he led out of Egypt. And when we read about the Israelites first coming out of Egypt, they didn't have a whole lot of questions about the evidence for God and his supernatural works because they had already been witnesses to them. In fact, they'd seen so much, they were actually more afraid than having more doubt about his existence. See, when the Israelites come out of Egypt, their questions are more related to who, who God is, what is he like, and what does he require from us? So again, the questions of Moses' primary audience, the Israelites, were more related to theology. Now, theology might be a scary word to some people or a heavy topic, but quite simply, theology is just what we think about God. It's the study of who God is. And so God has not left us alone to our own selves to try to figure out who he is. He has graciously given us a testimony about himself in his written word, the Bible. And the Bible really is God's story. And since the Bible tells God's story, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know what he is like and who he is. So God had Moses write those first five books of the Bible so that the Israelites would know who he is what he is like, and what he requires. And the same thing that God wants the Israelites to know, he wants us to know too. He gives us these written words as a way to know him and what he requires from us. Friends, those same questions that the Israelites had are the same questions that we wrestle with too. And we need to have a right theological perspective of God in order for us to live rightly before him. So, through the story of Noah and the flood, we're going to look at four primary things that God wants us to know about him. One, that he is the supreme judge over his creation. There's no higher authority that man answers to or he's accountable to other than his creator. And secondly, God wants us to know that he saves 
the righteous. Since God is judge, he decides who can be saved and how they are saved. And third is about our response. When we acknowledge that God is judge and that he sets the terms on how we are to be saved, we have a choice to make. The last thing God wants us to know about him through the story of Noah is that he is a God who makes promises. And he has a promise that he has revealed to us and that he wants us to know about him. So today we're going to start our story in Genesis 6, where we're going to read what I'll call God's indictment on humanity. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 6, 5 to 7. That's where we're going to start. Genesis 6, 5 to 7. Again, Genesis 6, 5 to 7. And just read along with me here. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So here we are in the text just basically three chapters away from man's first sin in the Garden of Eden, and already God is saying that man's wickedness is great, that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Can you imagine living in a world like that, where every intention of the thoughts of people's hearts are only evil all the time? You see, evil didn't just stop in their thoughts and in their hearts as if they just had these things come up in their hearts and minds and then they didn't act upon them. No, their evil thoughts turned into evil action, motivated by evil intentions, They are completely motivated by evil. And the text makes that really clear. And so God has an emotional response to the highlight of his creative work going awry. God's heart is grieved or he's sorry and he's filled with pain. Twice here God says his heart is grieved. So he is deeply distressed at what he sees going on. A couple years ago, uh, when I was in seminary, in one of my pastoral ministry classes, like a pastoral leadership ministry class, and there was an assignment given out for us to contact some leaders. And so uh, the purpose of that was just to figure out uh, some leadership principles from people in leadership positions and see how they could apply to, to us for doing future ministry. And so I called a couple of pastors as well as some other people in other positions of leadership and one pastor I, I talked to is a pastor of a large church in Northern California. And uh, I asked him a two-part question. And the first part was basically this. I said, you know, what do you rejoice about in your position and in, in ministry in general? And he gave a pretty typical pastoral response, one that you would expect a pastor to give, which was he was excited and rejoiced over people being saved of people using their spiritual gifts, of feeling empowered in what they are doing and 
and what they were doing. So basically, he was excited and rejoiced over seeing people's lives changed by the power of God. And then when I got to the second part of the question, and I asked him, you know, well, what do you, uh, what do you cry over? In other words, what makes you grieve, right? He said, just a, his first answer was just the word sin. And then he said, sin and the devastating effects that it can bring to a family. And you see, that pastor knew something about the personal effects of sin on people that he knew. The pastor's heart had a very godly response to sin. His heart simply reflected God's heart over sin. It grieved him. It caused him pain and caused him heartache. And that is how we should respond to sin, when we, not only in ourselves, but when we look out at the world. Not only is God grieved at the wickedness of his creation in this text, but he is grieved to a point of action. God says in verse 7 that he's going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. So God's indictment of humanity picks up again in verse 11 to 13. So read with me verses 11 to 13. This is the next part of God's indictment on humanity. So verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Hear a common word in there? Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So notice here the word corrupt. It's used three times. Used three times as a way to describe the moral condition of people living in Moses's, or excuse me, in Noah's generation. The people have no morals at this point. They're completely and thoroughly morally bankrupt. God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world because of the violence man is doing to his fellow man. And it's not like it's just a little violence here and there, little skirmishes here and there. It's not like, you know, your evening cable television with UFC fights happening all over the place or cage matches. No, it says that God's earth is filled with violence. The totality, the mentality of everybody is this violent mentality and violent action. And so there's so much violence that of what is going on, I'm just going to refer to it as vigilante justice because that's essentially what's happening. Now, where do I come up with that? Well, going back to chapter 4 is where we see the first murder. If you recall from the slides, Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. After that murder occurs, the text shows us the establishment of a righteous line of people and a line of unrighteous people. And Cain, in his unrighteous line, had an ancestor named Lamech. And Lamech is the one who initiates this idea of what I call vigilante justice. Lamech's attitude about being wronged is that Even if a person wounds him, if they strike at him, he's going to retaliate by killing them. 
And so his attitude of vengeance is the direct opposite of God's heart. Remember uh, when Peter asked Jesus, you know, how many times should I forgive somebody, Lord, you know, for offenses that are done to Peter? And Peter gave, I think, an answer that he thought would be good for Jesus. He said, you know, should I do it seven times? And what was Jesus' response to him? He said, well, no, not 70, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And so Lamech's attitude, instead of, you know, being one of unending forgiveness like Christ, is one of unending vengeance, because he says, Lamech says of himself, I will avenge 77 times. So this is the spirit of what I'll just call vigilante justice begins, and it continues up to the days of Noah. And there's this progression of violence that just goes unchecked. There's no, you know, system of government as far as that we can tell. There's not a judicial, judicial system of government set up yet. It's just this crazy vigilante justice and violence going on that totally violates the heart of God. Now, there seems to be another factor at play in the corruption of the earth besides this idea of vigilante justice. We have one part of God's indictment on humanity being excessive violence, and then the second part here is excessive sexual sin. And Lamech is where we see this violation of God's design for sexual oneness between a man and a woman. Lamech is said to have two wives instead of one. And by the first couple verses of chapter 6, in verse 6-2, the text tells us that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, commentators are really divided about who those sons of God are, and I don't have time to, you know, chart them out for you on those opinions and throw you my opinion. And I, I don't know that that's, it's interesting, but the, I don't know if that's the main point. I think the main point is that there's some kind of rampant sexual sin that is going on here that the author wants us to know about. So, and the sinful pattern here is really just like the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Remember Eve in the Garden of Eden, she saw the fruit, she was pleased to the, it was pleasing to her eye, it was attractive and then desirable for eating, and so she took some. In 6.2, what I just talked about, the sons of God, they see something, their eyes are drawn to something, they're drawn to beautiful women, they're attracted to it. And their attraction leads to a taking, and a taking of any that they choose. Not just, not just one, but a taking of any that they choose. And so God's indictment upon humanity is, is likely twofold here. One is the excessive violence, the vigilante justice that is rampant upon the earth, and the other is sexual sin being committed. And I just want to say that both of those mar the image of God, and that is why God is grieved. It mars his image. Now, God cannot let the corruption continue. He cannot let sin remain unchecked. Otherwise, it's a violation of his justice. And we talked at the beginning how God is just. 
So he decides to wipe out mankind and everything that lives upon the earth. God not only decides this in his heart, but he communicates it to a person. God will always tell us and he'll always warn us of what he is going to do. He'll always tell us of his divine action, whether that's a good thing that's going to happen or whether if it's a terrible thing that's going to happen. But God communicates that truth to us. So God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the earth. Now, in the midst of this coming judgment, God provides grace. And God will always, he will always supply grace in the midst of judgment. And Noah is the recipient of God's grace. God doesn't decide to annihilate the human, the human race. Otherwise, we, would have, we wouldn't be here today. Noah would have died too. None of us would be here. But God decides to save himself a remnant. He decides to save the righteous line of faith, of whom Noah was the only one left. And this is leading us to the second point that we should learn about God from this story. It's that God saves the righteous. God saves those who belong to him and who follow him. Let's read what uh, is said about Noah right there in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. The text says that Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. And this pattern of righteous faith is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1.17, when he says, the righteous will live by faith. So righteous faith doesn't come about because of right intellectual assent, as Pastor Mike was talking about several weeks ago. It doesn't come about because we did enough right things and good things to earn a right reward from God. That's not it either. Righteous faith comes from believing in who the Lord says that he is, and we allow his standards and his ways to permeate our lives. In other words, you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And Noah, that was who he was. He was a fully devoted follower of the Creator. He was not going to participate in the sins of his generation because he followed the Lord, because he loved the Lord and followed the Lord's ways. You see, God decides he will save him and his family. So God not only decides who can be saved, i.e. the righteous, but he also decides how they are saved. And in verse 14, God gives Noah the instructions on how he can be saved. He tells him to build the ark, and he gives him instructions on how to build the ark. So the object of Noah's saving is the ark. Now today, God has given us an object as well, and that is Jesus Christ. Today, Jesus is the object of our saving faith. And the Bible consistently tells us that there's going to be a future judgment that God will bring upon the world and that all the people of all time will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account of their whole life. 
Those who have put their faith in Christ will escape God's judgment. Those who have not will face his judgment. And Romans 4.24, 5 to 1 says this about Jesus. It says that God will credit righteousness. He'll, in other words, he'll put righteousness into your account for those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to escape God's wrath, if you want to have peace with God about your eternal security, you need to believe, and you need to come to a point of belief about what this text says about Jesus. That he died for your sins. That he not only died, but he rose again. So if you believe those things and you follow him, you can have peace with God. So God tells Noah that he'll provide him an ark to escape his coming judgment on the earth. And then the other thing that God promises is a covenant. Look down at verse uh, 18. Chapter 6 still. We're still in chapter 6. Look down at verse 18 or over, however your pages turn in the Bible. And God's talking here. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So God tells Noah he's going to give him a covenant. But he doesn't, he doesn't specify here what the covenant is. God's just asking Noah to trust in his promise. And God is really asking Noah to trust in three things here. The promise that he's going to destroy the earth with a flood, the promise that the ark would save him, and the promise of this covenant, which is unspoken, which I would imagine involves some, a certain amount of trust here. So Noah has a choice to make, just like we all have a choice to make. Do we obey God out of reverent fear and respect, or do we walk away and ignore what he says? Do we respond in faith, or do we stay in a spot of unbelief? And this brings us to the third thing that we need to learn about God from this story. It's that God is looking to see how we will respond to his saving. Noah's response was by trusting in God's promise. Noah was trusting God to do something he never heard or saw before. Up to that point in human history, God had not judged the world. There had never been any rain on the earth. In Genesis 2.5, it says that God had not yet brought rain upon the earth, that the watering system for God's creation was through the ground up, not the top down. So can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah to experience a flood when there had never been rain before? Some of you might be thinking, no, it's not hard for me to imagine that. It never rains here either. (laughs) So not only had Noah never seen rain, But the size of the ark was another issue as well, because nobody had ever seen anything like that before either. God, the master planner, gives Noah the wisdom to build this enormous boat. You know, people always, uh, it's popular today to argue about the size of the ark and if it could have made it and all those kind of things. And people uh, will discredit the ark, but they'll give praise to this second century ship that would part of the Roman Empire. And this ship was called the Iris, and it would sail through the Mediterranean. 
and it had dimensions of being 180 feet by 45 by 44 feet. You want to know how big the ark is? The ark is 450 feet by 75 by 45. So it is, you know, this other ship is only a quarter the size of the ark. In other words, it's a huge technological advancement way ahead of its time, unmatched, probably until modern times. So God did a really remarkable thing with the instructions that he gave Noah. So between the time Noah receives the instruction to build the ark and between the flood coming, it's probably between 70, 80 years, and I guess that because Noah is 500 when he has kids, and the text says it's, he's 600 when the flood begins. So in all those years, he's faithfully building the ark. And what else is he doing besides just building a big boat? Well, he's telling and he's warning others about God's coming judgment. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. I think one of the most interesting things of the account of Noah is that there's no dialogue from Noah until after the flood, until his kids do something and he doesn't like what they're doing and he's upset with them. But that doesn't mean that Noah never said anything in all those years building the ark. I mean, how could what he is doing be kept silent? I mean, he had a technological masterpiece on his hands. I would imagine people marveled at the size of what they saw. But I also imagine that he got mocked repeatedly for his reasons of building it. Because I'm sure he would have been asked, and I'm sure he would have given an answer. And I imagine that Noah was a pretty lonely man in his generation. I mean, he is the last man standing. So by building the ark, and by the example of Noah's faith in the Lord, Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah condemned the world. He condemned the world because the world did not believe. So his life, everything that he was doing, was a testimony to others about God's condemnation coming to the world because of its wickedness. 1 Peter 3.20 speaks of God waiting patiently. God waited patiently for people to come to repentance. Again, grace in the midst of judgment. God waited patiently for people to come to repentance during the years the ark was built, but none did. Their lack of unbelief and their unrepentant hearts condemned them to God's judgment. Now, again, Noah responded positively to God's grace and saving action. He trusted in God's promises to him. He told others about what was going to happen to them if they did not change their ways. And lastly, he thanked God by worshiping him and offering him a sacrifice when the flood was over. Genesis 8, 20 to 21 says that Noah Noah offered a sacrifice that was called a burnt offering and that the Lord was pleased with his offering. And the burnt offering was a sacrifice done out of a thankful heart for God saving him. And burnt offerings weren't only done for that reason alone, but they were also done as a way to atone for sin. So today, when we were taking communion, we were kind of expressing something similar to God. When we take communion... We are thanking God for his gracious saving of us and remembering his son, Jesus, who was the perfect sacrifice for sin and the atonement for sin. And no one could have done that but him. And this brings me to our final point today, and that God has a promise for you. After the flood, God follows through on his promise to Noah to establish his covenant with him. Genesis 9, 8 to 11 communicates that. If you just flip over there real quick. 
Genesis 9, 8 to 11. I think on the slide I put to verse 17. But for the sake of time, we'll just read here because this gives us the core of what God is saying about his covenant. So Genesis 9, 8 to 11. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God gives this everlasting covenant to mankind to never destroy the earth with a flood. God's side of his covenant, if you read on, is the rainbow. And anytime you see a rainbow in the sky, which are few and far between here compared to where I grew up in the Midwest, (laughs) the promise is that he'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. You know, God has been pretty gracious to humanity to allow humanity to continue on as long as it has. But the Bible does talk about how one day he's going to do away with this creation and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. God is a God of promises. He makes a covenant to us not to destroy with a flood, but he also offers a better covenant today. And this is what is called the new covenant in Scripture. And this requirement of the new covenant is not complicated. He just simply asks you, God just simply asks you to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus died for your sins so that you could have eternal life. And that when you receive Jesus, you can begin to walk in a new way of living for him. That is what is available to you today. And really all these four things that I talked about could also be looked at as a promise that God has given to us. God promises to judge evil. God also promises grace in the midst of that. God also Based on your response to him, he promises that he will save you. And so that is who God is and what he has done for us. He has offered us himself as a way to be saved because we cannot save ourselves. 